The Old Pilot's Plain Tales 300 Oh, choices, choices. What possible plain tale could I do for the 300th Airline Pilot Guy show? Perhaps I should cover Zero Gravity's parabolic flights which simulate weightlessness and who are offering an opportunity to float like an astronaut, sting like a bee, or perhaps not, on the 300th flight for a mere $3,000. I could talk about the Australian guide dog, Brogan, who took his record 300th flight on Qantas earlier this year. Or the Flight 300 Party Pill, that offers a natural herpes relief. But I suspect that would be one for Dr. Steph to talk about, that is. Perhaps I should read from the War Journal of the Luftwaffe's Jagerschwader No. 1, which on the 10th of May 1918 stated that the Geschwader of Manfred von Richthofen scored their 300th victory by shooting down a de Havilland 9 only 19 days after the Red Baron was himself killed. Then again, I could mention the 300th anniversary of Henry Hudson's discovery of the Hudson River. In 1909, a special event was created, which was watched by more than one million New Yorkers, during which Wilbur Wright flew around the Statue of Liberty. Wilbur's flight lasted approximately 33 minutes and covered 20 miles. In case there was an emergency that required him to land in water, Wilbur attached a canoe to the bottom of his aeroplane. Or, of course, I could do something from the future. Or, more correctly, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And talk about the 300th Flight Battalion, which was an airborne battalion deployed by the clone army of the Republic during the Star Wars. Ah, I have it. It was obvious, really, to anyone who knows me, what 300 represents. What, you ask? Well, my ever-patient and generous audience, it's a subject that will, of course, make the I'm-not-going brigade roll their eyes. It's going to be the Airbus A300 airliner. Now, I know all of you Boeing lovers will be reaching for the off button, but I promise, I do, I promise, I will get on to your favourite manufacturer on show number 747. Is it my fault they have such big numbers? And then I'll be talking about some Boeing airplanes, possibly also be mentioning how they've taken over McDonnell Douglas, Lockheed, North American... Autonetics, de Havilland Australia, Hughes Aircraft Company, Rocketdyne and Stearman to name just a few and slap their logo on many of those companies' fine aircraft. So, sit back and relax. Airbus, here we come. Ah, Airbus, Scarebus, Squarebus, or however you like to call it. They are the only real competitor for that voracious Seattle-based manufacturer. 
Now, Airbus came about from an economic interest group formed between the governments of the UK, France and Germany in 1967. The initial shareholders were the French company Aerospatial and the West German company Deutsche Airbus, but they were joined by the British Hawker Siddeley and the German Fokker VFW, plus of course the Spanish company Casa to make it a truly European venture. The name Airbus was actually in very common usage between the 60s and 70s to describe almost any aircraft from the 707 or 737 up to the L1011 or 747 and almost everything in between. Pacific Western Airlines even used Airbus as a brand name for their shuttle service. The name was therefore adopted since it was a non-proprietary term used by the whole industry at the time. The first Airbus airliner came from a plan to build a 300-plus seated twin-engined aircraft and it was informally called the A300, a name that stuck, even as the final design proved to be smaller than was first envisaged. The Airbus A300 was to be the world's first, let me say that again please, the world's first wide-body twin-engine aircraft, and it led the way in twin-engined airliner design. As was to become common in Airbus manufacturing, the responsibility for building different parts of the aircraft were parceled out to the different consortium partners. France built the pointy end, uh, the flight controls and the lower centre part of the fuselage. The UK knocked up the wings and were to do the engines. Germany, the rest of the fuselage. The Dutch had the flaps and spoilers. And Spain, who were a little late to the party, got uh, to build the horizontal tailplane. The Rolls-Royce 207 triple-spooled engine that was going to be fitted was going to be a bit late and possibly slow initial production. So alternatively powered versions were offered, with engines from Pratt & Whitney or General Electric. Apart from being the first ever wide-body twin, have I mentioned that? The aircraft achieved a number of other firsts. Due to its high performance and safety standards, it became the first ever, that's the first ever, ETOPS, Extended Twin Operations Compliant Aircraft. It was the very first, yep, the very first commercial aircraft to use composite materials. It pioneered the use of centre of gravity control by transferring fuel. It had the most advanced wing design of the time, a highly efficient supercritical wing section. The A300 also had some clue of what Airbus technology would eventually be able to deliver with its fully electric brake control. Later versions would achieve another world first, the first ever wide-body aircraft designed for two crew, as well as having a fully glass cockpit. The A300's launch party was rather overshadowed by the similarly timed arrival on the aviation scene of the Concorde, and everybody wanted to write about the cool kids in their fancy pointed jet with his ass on fire. However, 
The A300 proved to be an extremely attractive option, and not only did it sell to European airlines, it was also purchased by American Airlines, Pan American, Continental, Eastern, UPS and FedEx, to name just a few. Over 500 were built and operated by over 90 airlines worldwide. In addition to passenger versions, the A300 came in a freight version, which is widely acknowledged as the best-selling freight aircraft of all time. That's the best-selling freight aircraft of all time. Ten years after the official launch of the A300, the company had achieved a 26% market share in terms of dollar value, enabling Airbus Industries to proceed with the development of its second aircraft, the Airbus A310. The aircraft served as a passenger airline, a cargo transporter, a VIP aircraft, a military airborne tanker and transport, and in addition, it became the Airbus Super Transporter, or Beluga, and used to ferry parts between the company's manufacturing facilities. 561 A300s were ordered and 561 delivered of which 239 are still in operation. As of late 2015, 32 hulls had been lost. Of the very first and more memorable incidents was the A300 that was hijacked by terrorists and flown to Entebbe Airport in Uganda. Israeli commandos rescued 102 of the 106 hostages. But for the full story, you'll have to listen to The Plain Tale in APG episode 254, Operation Yonaton. In other incidents, the A300 proved itself to be a wonderfully strong and capable airframe. On the 22nd of November 2003, during the invasion of Iraq by US-led forces, Fedayeen irregular units who were loyal to Saddam Hussein put up stiff resistance by launching guerrilla-style attacks on rear supply convoys. At Baghdad Airport, an A300 registered OODLL was being operated by European Air Transport on behalf of DHL and was returning to Europe, only half full, having delivered mail and other essentials to the American troops. The only people on board were the crew, the two Belgian pilots, Captain Eric Genot and First Officer Steve Michielsen, plus a British flight engineer, Mario Raphael. The captain was 38 and had a good amount of experience with over 3,000 hours, most on the A300. The Australian air traffic personnel working at Baghdad cleared the aircraft for takeoff and soon it was approaching 8,000 feet on its way to reach 10,000 where it would be safe from attack. Unbeknown to Captain Genot, a Fadayeen unit with a French journalist accompanying them had assembled on the outskirts of the airport. As he got airborne, he was spotted, and from the back of a pickup, a Russian SA-14 Strela, known to NATO as the Gremlin, was produced. Whilst the nitrogen bottle in the launcher's body cooled the infrared seeker head, the A-300 climbed. 
Eventually, the Seeker became operational and acquired the heat source, the General Electric CF-6 engines, and the missile leapt from its launcher tube. The missile had a theoretical maximum engagement altitude of 7,500 feet, but climbing at nearly 1,500 feet a second, the missile easily overtook the airliner. Passing the A-300's left wingtip, the blast fragmentation warhead exploded. The impact shook the aircraft, and almost immediately, Mario, the engineer, announces a double hydraulic system failure as the green and yellow circuits emptied their fluid through the ruptured hydraulic lines. Twenty seconds later, Captain Genot felt the flight control stiffen as the third and final hydraulic system, the blue, failed. His aircraft is on fire with fuel and flames streaming from his shattered left wing. With no hydraulics, his ailerons, rudder and elevators are floating unpowered. He is unable to move them. His trimmable horizontal stabilator and spoilers are frozen, along with his flaps and slats, which are attracted. The crew assessed their situation. They had no flight controls. Part of their left wing was missing, the rest was on fire, and they were losing fuel at an alarming rate. At the moment, about all they had going for them were the two working engines. In the history of civil aviation, only two aircraft have been in a similar situation, the Sioux City DC-10 and the JAL 747. Despite a heroic effort by Captain Al Haynes and his crew, the DC-10 crashed, killing 112. The JAL 747 came down, killing 520. The odds were not good, but as Mario Raphael explained, the rulebook has gone out of the window. Situations like this are unique every time. You cannot train for them. You cannot write a checklist for them. The crew have since listened to the cockpit voice recorder tape and say that they are quite surprised at how calm they all sound. Raphael says, all you can do is apply common sense and stay calm. We were the right combination of crew. The only control left to them were the engines. Being mounted under the wings in pods, an increase in thrust would cause the aircraft to pitch up a little. The opposite would occur when power is reduced. Asymmetric power would cause the aircraft to yaw and then roll, allowing them to crudely turn. The crew managed to steer towards the airfield, whilst, unbeknown to them, a second missile, an older SA-7 Grail, has been fired. The missile tracks towards the crippled aircraft, but at the last moment, unbelievably, it diverges, missing them. It became obvious that they were unable to get their speed low enough to land and still keep control of the aircraft, so Raphael used the emergency system to lower the landing gear, which, despite being well above the maximum speed, works perfectly. The aircraft was trimmed to 215 knots when the stabilator froze, and with the speed back to that regime, it's a little easier to control. But despite this, Captain Genot goes around from his first approach.
The engineer is working hard to ensure that, despite the fuel leak, fuel is fed to the left engine, but not the fire. Without both of the engines running, they are doomed. The second approach, made from a long straight in, is looking better, and they are lined up to land on runway 33 left. At about 400 feet, they enter the turbulent air that is common around hot airfields, and the aircraft starts to veer off course as the right wing drops. Jeanotte adds power and rights it again, but as they touch down, with no rudder or steering, they run off the side of the runway. Engaging full thrust reverse, the aircraft starts to plough across the sand and disappears into a huge cloud of dust kicked up by the reversers. Watchers assume the worst, but as the dust settles, the aircraft is intact and has stopped a mere 3,300 feet after landing. An unbelievable story of a remarkable crew and aircraft. The crew were rightly honoured and given awards from around the globe. They included the Hugh Gordon Burge Memorial Award from the Guild of Air Pilots, which is awarded to flight crew whose outstanding behaviour and action contributed to the saving of their aircraft and is only given for events of significant merit and the Flight Safety Foundation's Professionalism Award in Flight Safety, which was presented to the crew members for their extraordinary piloting skills in controlling their aircraft. And what of the amazing A300? Well, it was promptly repaired and put up for sale. Music by bensounds.com